Okay. Well, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, or your worship guide. You can find that on page 9. And as you're turning there, a few things to get us started. First of all, hello. It's good to see everybody this morning. I was out for... Couple weeks and then back, but we still had a guest and good to be back here. So good to see you. You look good. Uh, second, this is our, this is the first Sunday of the season of Advent today. And Advent is a season in the church calendar. It's actually the beginning of the church calendar year. So today is sort of like New Year's Sunday in a way. It's the beginning of the church calendar year. But seasons in the church calendar are important because uh, when we recognize them, when we listen to the stories that they have to tell and to the vibes that they put out, it unites us to the global church. And it unites us to the church throughout history. So today, Christians all over the world are recognizing today is the first Sunday of Advent. So it's good for us to recognize that. Um, Advent. Advent is a season that's all about uh, practicing the discipline of anticipation. I think we could say patience and anticipation as a discipline, as a spiritual discipline. Let me tell you what I mean by way of analogy. I think it'll kind of help us wrap our minds around uh, how we should think about Advent and what it uh, how I can curate, help to curate our time together here. I was somewhere the other day, I can't remember where it was, but I overheard two ladies talking, and they were having a conversation I think I've heard almost every single year about this time for as long as I can remember. One lady said something about, isn't it crazy that Christmas decorations are already out? And the other lady said, oh, they were putting them out even before Halloween, or before Thanksgiving this year. Halloween was over and Christmas was already out. And the other, the other person said something like, "Oh, I wish they would. I wish they would wait." <laughs> I hear that many of us have heard, uh, especially at you know coffee shops and grocery stores, houses. The, the decorations that go up. Culturally, there's something in us that wants to race toward Christmas. And if you think about the metaphor of like a a good metaphor is like a like a drag race, like the cars, you know, they're, they're lined up on the starting line and somebody waves the flag and then and then hit the gas and we race off toward Christmas. How fast can we get there? How fast can we put up the decorations? Can we do all the Christmassy things? Our culture does that. Well, Advent calls us to do two things. First, it calls us to keep our foot on the brake until it's Christmas time. Uh, it calls us to patience. We don't want to rush to Christmas because there's something here in this time that we don't want to miss. The second thing Advent calls us to do is, with our other foot, start revving the engine. So when Christmas does get here, we are fully ready. So patience and anticipation. And these are disciplines. So for the next four weeks, every Sunday, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the first two 
We're going through the first two chapters in the book of Luke, which is the, the most all-in-one-place detailed uh, Advent Christmas story all-in-one-place in the Bible. And we're going to be going through it slowly. And each week we're going to be looking at it, uh, remembering to be patient, to look forward, to anticipate. We're anticipating not just the coming of Christmas. We're actually looking back at the first Christmas to anticipate the coming, second coming of Christ. Where he will uh, make visible and tangible everything he accomplished in his death and resurrection and ascension. Okay, so I'll tell you what, that's enough intro. Luke 1, 1 through 25. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I, too, decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When the time for the burning of the incense came, all assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. For he will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. 
And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In the days, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible story. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can come to your word and be sure, be confident that we can find you. We pray that you would um, open our hearts, our minds, our, our ears. Help us to see you for the king that you are. Lord, I pray that you would do the advent work in us. Cause us to be patient, but to anticipate your coming. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. So, a few things, just getting started here. Um, the book of Luke, uh, contrary to, to quite, understand, quite understandably popular belief, uh, Luke himself, the guy who wrote this, was not one of the uh, original disciples and apostles. He was actually a friend of Paul, and we don't know if he, probably not, if he ever interacted with Jesus personally. Uh, but he wrote this book, and but it does have sort of this, what we would call, not sort of, definitely apostolic authority. And that's because the story that we find here comes from the people who actually uh, uh, saw all these things take place firsthand. We, we see that in the first paragraph. Luke is writing all this down. He's, he's kind of an investigative journalist. At the time that Luke was... He wrote this. The stories about Jesus were were circulating. They were all over the place. And, and, and maybe uh, chances are Mark's gospel was already out, and uh, it tells part of Jesus's life, but we don't get the whole picture. And there were all these the eyewitnesses were still around, but they were getting old. And here comes Luke, and he thinks, you know, somebody needs to put together, like, in one place, an orderly account, pull together all of these testimonies. So that's what he did, and that's where we get this book. And we read at the beginning, he writes it in the form of a letter to somebody named Theophilus. Theophilus means loved by God, and maybe that was a real person, maybe it's a figurative person, maybe it's sort of a metaphorical, this is a letter to everyone who is loved by God. We don't know. It's not really that important. What is important is that every single thing in this gospel and the way that Luke puts this together, he did by his own admission right at the beginning with great care and intention. Sure, all the scriptures put together that way. But Luke starts off with 
Before we get into the story, you have to know that what I'm writing here, I really worked hard to give you an orderly account. I talked to everybody. It's like he's saying, Theophilus, whoever you are, pay attention not just to the story, but to the way I'm about to tell it. And that's important for us today because Luke's story, Luke's gospel, um, unlike Matthew or Mark or even John, doesn't start with Jesus. It starts with this kind of a random country priest named Zechariah. And we have this, Zechariah is John the Baptist's dad. Now we know why John the Baptist was important. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He was the preparing the way for the Lord. He was the messenger coming to prepare the people for Christ. But Luke doesn't even start with him. He starts with uh, his mom and dad in this crazy story uh, leading up to John the Baptist's birth. So here's the question I want to answer today. In Luke's orderly investigative journalist forensic gospel, why spend um, 25 of the opening verses talking about this story? Why did he start with this? Is it just because it's a good story? If it was just because it's a good story, he could have told it in a different way. But starting with, hey, Theophilus, pay attention to this gospel. Now I'm going to take a five minutes of your time telling you about Zechariah and Elizabeth. There's something here. So what is it? So that's the big question for this morning. So to answer it, uh, I want to just, let's hit high points, the contours of the story. I know we just read it, but if you're like me, sometimes when we read scripture in church, don't tell anybody, but sometimes I, it, I kind of glaze over and, and I kind of miss some of the details. So in case you're like me and that happens, here's, here's the high points. First, uh, Luke gives us background on this guy, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. Uh, it was when Herod was king of Judea. That's Herod the Great. He was a big, bad tyrant of a man. Uh, he was known as the king of the Jews. Uh, he was a paranoid dictator. One day we'll have a sermon talking all about him, but it's during that time. Uh, this is in Roman-ruled Judea, and that means that the high priest who was in the temple was not a legitimate descendant of Aaron. He was a politically appointed figure uh, in a league with the Romans who had no biological relation to the line of Hebrew priests. Okay, so it's during that time. During that time, there was a legitimate descendant of Aaron living in the Judean countryside. Him and his wife both are real Levites. And it's there. Oh, and by the way, they're, they're not just legitimate uh, in a time of uh, illegitimate leadership. Uh, they're not just legit, but they're also true believers. It says that they were righteous. Now, we know when the Bible talks about people being righteous, that doesn't mean that, uh, that, doesn't mean that they never did something bad. What it means is that they're righteous by faith. They're believers. They're true believers. They're hoping in God for their salvation. 
They're resting and relying and hoping on God. And they're out there in the country and they're infertile. And they've been infertile for years because they're old. Now, by this time, Bible reading brings Mission Go. This sounds familiar. Remember last year we studied the story of Abraham and Sarah. There's something familiar there. The, there's sort of this type in the Bible of the old, righteous, and fertile couple. Abraham and Sarah. Then we have Jacob and Rachel. We have Samson's parents. We have uh, the prophet Samuel's parents. This is a thing. So here's this couple. Now it comes time for Zechariah to do his rotation uh, serving in the temple. Now, uh, that happened twice a year. He was in a particular division, the division of Abijah. There were 24 divisions of Levitical priests. And his each division would serve twice a year. I'm not sure if the math worked on that, but that's what the Bible experts say. And I'm better at listening to them than I am at doing math. So 24 divisions that he'd serve twice a year. Now, uh, there were like 3,000 priests in his division. And there were lots of things to do uh, to curate and to facilitate the temple worship. Um, there was all kinds of things. Now, the most important part of the daily temple worship was happened twice a day, once in the morning, once in the early evening, when a single priest would go into the holy place, um, which is the second most inmost part of the temple, The only priest would go twice a day to burn incense at the altar of incense. This was, this was an extremely, um, reverent, sacred time. You're standing right there in this place. Only priest can go altar of incense right before you is the curtain to the Holy of Holies where the ark, the ark would have been, even though at this time the ark uh, wasn't there. Different story. Uh, but this is as close to the local presence of God that anyone would come except for, uh, on the, on the, that one day here, the, the, um, when, when the high priest would go all the way in. But so twice a day, high point of the thing. Now, regular priests only got to do this maybe once in their life and it worked on a lottery system. So they would cast lots. And if your number got pulled up, you got to be the priest that went in. And then once you went in, you were off the thing. You only got to go in once. So what this means is Zechariah would go twice a year to do his temple stuff. And uh, every single time, you know that he was thinking, is this the year that my number is going to get called? Is this the year? And maybe this, I'm being a little imaginative here, but I want to go out on a limb and say um, the most important days of this guy's life, I'd say this wedding day, that was probably really important to him. Uh, he's never had a child. Uh, and then there's the day he gets to go in and do the most important thing in his, in his work and in worship he'll ever get to do. And he does it for the whole people of Israel. And can you imagine? He's getting old. Is he ever? I don't even get to. Everybody else gets to have kids. I don't get to have kids. And I've never even gotten to go in the thing. I'm an old priest. And then his number gets called. Man, this is serious. And this is very reverent. Back when we learned about this incense burning thing in Leviticus, we, we get all the instructions. The instructions come in Exodus. 
And then right after that in Leviticus, uh, we find out that, that two of the first people who go in, Aaron's sons, who are, have funny names, I can't remember off the top of my head, Nadab and Abihu, something like that. Uh, they go in and they do it wrong and God strikes them dead. So this is like a real important thing. His number gets called and he goes in. And he's in there and he goes in with a couple guys and they do like a liturgical thing. And then the other guys leave and it's just him and silence the presence of God. And he's got to light this incense and then he's supposed to say a prayer for the redemption of Israel. And he starts the process. And I would imagine his heart is probably racing. He's probably a little nervous because he doesn't want to get killed by the holiness of God for doing it wrong. This is like the high point of his career, probably the high point of his life. He probably wished he could have texted Elizabeth, but they didn't have cell phones. This is a big deal. And then all of a sudden, there's somebody else in the room. And it says that he was scared. And lots of times in the Bible, when people see angels, they get scared. And I think that was part of it. I also think that he probably got startled. Because when I think I'm the only person in the room and I look over and somebody else is there, it usually makes my heart skip a beat. I'm a little jumpy, but uh, you can imagine. Can you imagine being in there? Gooseless. And he looks over and there's this angel. Intense moment. He says, he's ripped with fear. I wonder if he thought he was about to get killed. Maybe he did it wrong. Here's, here's the angel. Take him out. And the angel says, like the sweetest words, don't be afraid. (laughs) And then the angel says, your prayer has been heard. Interesting. He he was standing there praying for the redemption of Israel. Also, I I guarantee you, he's been praying his whole life for a, a kid. Now, we don't know which prayer it was. The angel says, your prayer has been heard, and you and your wife are going to have a son. And then the angel says that that son is going to, um, his, his name is going to be John, and he's going to do amazing things. And the angel quotes from the last passage in the last book of the Old Testament. The last since this time Old Testament prophet. There had been, there's 400 years in between the Old and the New Testament where there were no prophets, no special revelation words from God. There had been silence. And in this moment, the silence is broken. And the angel quotes from that last book of the Bible. And he says that, um, verse 17, the son, John, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's kind of an Advent type message to make ready, to prepare. Now, this son is going to be, grow up to be John the Baptist. The angel gives special instructions, no alcohol for this boy. Uh, there's something to that we'll get into in another sermon sometime. But the most important thing is that he's telling Zechariah his prayer has been heard. There's a son coming. It, it's, there's it's this great miracle that's happening, this answer to prayer. And it's for, um, to prepare the people for the coming of God. And Zechariah says, how can this be? 
I'm old. Remember from our Abraham series, Abraham asked that question when God said that he and Sarah would have a son. Remember when Abraham asked that question, God, God kind of ignored it. Well, now when Zechariah asked the question, the angel says, you know what? You're not going to be able to talk. Strikes him mute. And we see in the next chapter when Zechariah is, people are trying to talk to him. They're trying to sign too. So he's probably deaf and mute. He is unable to speak, probably unable to hear. And then he goes out. The people are wondering, why has it taken so long? What's wrong? He goes out. He's supposed to raise his hands and give the benediction like we do here every Sunday. We got that from, from them. He's supposed to do that, uh, but he can't. He can't. And he starts to try to sign to explain what happened. Um, Kids, can you imagine trying to sign with your hands, explain that you just saw an angel in a place where nobody was looking and the angel told you a miracle was going to happen? Can you imagine trying to explain that to a crowd of people who are already a little restless and you can't even words? Soren, would you know how to do that? No, me neither. Me neither. It's real confusing. And I guess they just disperse. It doesn't tell us what happened. He goes on with his work. Later, he goes home. What happens? Elizabeth gets pregnant. And she says, what does she say? Word for word. And these days, the Lord has shown favor and taken disgrace. So that's the story. Okay. Why does Luke start intentionally, orderly, forensically? Why does he start with this? What is he trying to say? What does he have for Theophilus, whoever he was? And what does God have for us, Hope Crest, our church, this Advent? What are we supposed to get from this crazy story? Well, I want to pull out two things that I see Luke communicating to Theophilus and his early readers. And two things I believe that God was telling us today through this story, this text, this Advent. Here's the first one. God's plan to save the world is the same plan as his plan to save you. Did you catch it? God's plan to save the world is the same plan as his plan to save you. Okay, Charlie, why, why, why is that important? Think with me for a moment. I think so many of us, especially if you grew up in church, so many of us were trained and taught uh, to believe and to trust that God sent his son into the world so that the world could be saved from sin, so that there would be cosmic renewal, so that we could have flourishing, so that death would be put away, there'd be a new humanity, uh, this grand cosmic redemption. Many of us were just, we're, we, 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 when we think about the gospel, we think about the renewal of all things. That's, and that's immediate. That's, that's what it sounds like, tastes like, and smells like to us. Cosmic and big picture salvation. 
Now, some of us weren't trained that way. We had to learn that. Some of us were trained early on, and we learned early on that God sent his son into the world uh, and so that to, to save you from your sins, so that you can be reconciled to God, so that you can die and go to heaven, so that you, like it says in Ephesians, so that Christ can live in your heart by faith. And you learn to ask Jesus into your heart. You learn to trust him as your personal savior. And so many of us grew up learning one perspective on the gospel or another. And in our culture, we can look around at churches. We can, we can sit down and we can start looking at churches in Portland and in our area. And we can see by the church's actions, by the preaching, by the way they talk about the gospel, whether they lean to this one, cosmic renewal, or whether they lean to this one, personal renewal. But here in this story, Luke, before he ever unrolls the story of Jesus, he tells this background story, this prelude, that insists on a total unity between cosmic and personal salvation. Let me just... The angel says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. You and Elizabeth will have a son. Now, the text doesn't tell us what prayer he prayed directly. But we know from the tradition, we know from studying this, that he was just standing there praying for the renewal of Israel. Cosmic renewal. We know from the context that this was a man uh, who experienced infertility, him and his wife, and they were now old. Now, you guys know our story, Rebecca and I, maybe you've experienced it, maybe you know other people who've experienced infertility. I have a hard time imagining there is any couple anywhere who desires to have kids who can't, who isn't longing and praying all the time. So when the angel says, your prayer has been heard, you will have a son, which prayer is he talking about? Elizabeth says, you have taken away my disgrace. Culturally, here in first century ancient Near East, for a a, a, a woman to not be able to have a child was the ultimate social disgrace. She says, my disgrace has been removed. Yet, her disgrace is removed because this son has come to prepare the people for the coming cosmic of God. There's a scholarly debate over which prayer is being answered, by the way, and it's kind of ridiculous because whether he was, it's the prayer for a son or the prayer for the renewal of Israel, the answer is the same. You're going to have a son. He will prepare the people for the coming of God. Do you see it? The angel quotes from Malachi, and he says that John is going to come. He's going to come like the prophet Elijah came, and he is going to 
What does he say exactly? Turn the hearts of parents to their children. If you flip back to Malachi, we read it earlier. It says the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. Now, when it talks in Malachi and then here again about the coming of God, one of the markers of God's coming is that the most intimate, the most at home, some of the most private relationships were some of the deepest, most hidden wounds, some of the deepest trauma, some of the greatest joys, some of the deepest security, all exists in our relationships with our parents, in our relationships with our kids. This is where we learn what it means to be human. Our mom and dad, our grown-ups. And when God comes, what he's going to do in the renewal of all things find, finds its uh, local expression in primal, fundamental, human, relational reconciliation. Luke is straining to show us as his readers that the gospel story he is about to tell, there is no bifurcation, there is no separation between cosmic and personal. Now, this is not just important because the way that churches have developed, the way we tell stories about the gospel in our culture, we tend to go one way or another. This is also important because it reminds us that the, the, the everyday minutia details of our mundane lives are part of God's, how do I say this? The everyday details of our mundane lives are also the everyday details of the extraordinary, unspeakable miracle of God renewing the world. Which means there is no mundane. There is, there really is no common in the Christian life. There really is no sacred, secular, divine. Jesus comes to reconcile all things and make all things new. And Monday Monday morning groan when the alarm goes off, all the way till the midweek, you know, uh, magical moment at home where you connect with your kids or your spouse or your, your friends, all the way till the restless, sleepless night, to the anxiety attack, to the phone call with the in-laws, it was awkward. To the we're filling out the spreadsheet with half your brain going numb. All of this stuff. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here. So I wonder what it would be like for us as a church to embrace a, a, a common cosmic importance to the little things that we do in our relationships. There's no such thing as a regular Sunday morning. There's no such thing as a regular friendship. Or like C.S. Lewis said, there's no such thing as a mere mortal. Folks, when we come together to worship, like Gabriel said, we stand in the presence of God. 
And when we go out to do our jobs, we are heralds of the kingdom. And when you give a dollar to somebody on the street asking for spare change, you are an expression of God's love and affirmation for their humanity. Folks, life is incredibly valuable and important. The unexplainable, infinite, mysterious God became a baby. Here's the second thing I think God wants us to know. First, his plan to save the world is his his plan to save you. And his plan to save you is his plan to save the world. Here's the second thing. Oh, man. You know what? We'll hit the second thing later. We're way over time. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Thank God for his beautiful miracle of grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he's doing. It's great.